525,600 minutes. How do you measure a year in the life? How about? Yes! Yes, you crushed! So good. I thought I was going to have to say like twice. Like, how about? But y'all went right to, all right, what movie? What movie? What musical? Rent. Yes. Truth be told, uh, I don't like musicals. Unless it's, I suppose, Hamilton or The Greatest Showman or maybe Sing Too or In the Heights, I like that one too. And uh, that, that awesome Christian musical, A Week Away. Any of you seen that? No? Okay. So maybe I like uh, musicals a little bit more than I let on. And uh, the reason, though, is actually because of my, my wife. That's why I can't pretend to like musicals, because her favorite movie is a musical, all right? The Sound of Music, which I think should be named The Sound of Boring. Are you out of your minds cheering for The Sound of Music? The Sound of Music is like the musical movie version of Zucchini Casserole, okay? Nobody likes it, but you know mama's going to make you eat it. Like, that. I'm sorry, like, but I digress. How do you measure a year? And you guys are like ready to, there's like pitchforks and like lanterns out there after me now. Sound of Music, it's sacred apparently. <laughs> How do you measure a year in a life? Or how do you measure a life? Uh, how do you not only measure life, but who gets to measure life? And who actually uh, kind of decides what the measuring stick is going to be? These are actually some of the questions that Peter is answering in our text today. If you've been here for the last number of weeks, you know that we've been kind of walking our way through a letter that Peter wrote to the fledgling young Christian church. Peter was, of course, one of Jesus' disciples, probably the most outgoing, brash uh, leader of the disciples. And in fact, Jesus said to Peter that he was going to build his church, his assembly, his gathering on Peter, that Peter was going to be this little rock. In fact, Peter's name actually means rock. It wasn't his actual name. It was his nickname, the name that Jesus gave him. His real name was Simon. And, and Jesus said, Simon, I'm, I'm calling you rock. And I'm going to build my church on you. And, and, and Peter actually matures and grows up into this pretty amazing follower of Jesus after Jesus' death and resurrection and Jesus' return back to heaven. And Peter goes on to not just uh, help lead the church initially there in Jerusalem, but actually winds up kind of becoming the, the lead pastor at the church that forms in Rome. And a lot of Peter's uh, um, parishioners, people that went to that, to that gathering there in Rome, uh, in the 60s or late 50s, and even kind of at the end of the 40s AD, more and more persecution starts falling down on these early Christians. In fact, Rome kicks out both Jews and Christians out of Rome and sends them, exiles them out to some of the far reaches of the Roman Empire. That's the people that Peter's writing to. And Peter's writing them this letter simply to help them hold on to their faith under just extreme circumstances where they're being persecuted. In fact, Peter's going to die just a few years after he writes this letter. 
He writes this letter. It's what we call 1 Peter. It's the first one that we have of his that was written. And then he also wrote another letter called 2 Peter. And shortly after he writes 2 Peter, he dies. This is just a few years before Peter's about to die. And so he writes this letter on how these young Christians are supposed to hang on to their faith. And he's been teaching them that throughout this letter, what we've been studying over the last number of months. Uh, In fact, uh, for the last probably, I think it's been about four weeks, we've looked at this train of thought that Peter's had that really started in chapter 2 and works its way through uh, chapter 2 and through chapter 3 into chapter 4. And We're kind of coming to the end. It's not the end of the letter, but it's the end of this train of thought that Peter has had. And what I'd like to do for you this morning is basically focus on 10 seconds Two minutes that leads to 24 hours, and then the final 15. All right? Uh, No idea what I'm talking about? Perfect. I'll fill you in as we go. What I'd like to do, though, is start by reading our text and then kind of explaining an outline of what Peter's up to here. Then I'm going to take just a quick second to explain... Uh, one honestly tricky passage, or excuse me, tricky verse that's in this passage, and then we're going to talk about how to measure a life. The 10 seconds, the two minutes that leads to 24 hours, and the final 15. Cool? Let's do it. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1 through 11. Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, Arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for, human, or for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel is preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regards to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, um, I will admit when I read that even in the NIV, which is a fairly modern translation, it still feels a little bit weird to our ears. Like, what is Peter getting at and why is he talking about these things this way? So what I'd like to do now is actually read the same passage from Eugene Peter Peterson's paraphrase called The Message. I think it will begin to help it make a little bit more sense to us. And then what I would like to do is uh, just kind of talk through what that outline of 
kind of Peter's logic is in this chunk of verses. So uh, let's just uh, read together. You can see it'll be up on the screen. I'll read it to you. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the same passage we just read. He says this. Since Jesus went through everything you're going through and more, learn to think like him. Think of your sufferings as a weaning from that old sinful habit of always expecting to get your own way. Then you'll be able to live out your days free to pursue what God wants instead of being tyrannized by what you want. You've already put in your time in that God-ignorant way of life, partying night after night, a drunken and profligate life. Profligate? What the heck, Eugene? You're supposed to be like helping. Let's see, basically that means like uh, wiling out. All right, that's what he's saying. Now it's time to be done with it for good. Of course, your old friends don't understand why you don't join in with the old gang anymore, but you don't uh, have to give an account to them. They're the ones who will be called on the carpet and before God himself. Listen to the message. It was preached to those believers who are now dead, and yet even though they died, just as all people must, they will still get in on the life that God has given in Jesus. Everything in the world is about to be wrapped up. So take nothing for granted. Stay wide awake in prayer. Most of all, love each other as if your life depended on it. Love makes up for practically anything. Be quick to give a meal to the hungry, a bed to the homeless, and do it cheerfully. Be generous with the different things God gave you, passing them around so all get in on it. If words, let it be God's words. If help, let it be God's hearty help. That way, God's bright presence will be evident in everything through Jesus, and he'll get all the credit as the one mighty in everything. Encores to the end of time, oh yes, which is how Eugene Peterson always translates, amen. <laughs> you see, what Peter's doing in this part of the letter is he's kind of laying out three things. It really starts in verses one and two. Uh, I'm actually going to put up on there, um, well, you can hit the next slide. Peter's wrap-up includes these three points in an application, all right, so just so you can see what's coming. The first point uh, we really find in verses one and two, and, and I've put back up Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this verse, and I've highlighted a couple of different words so that we see it. See, what he says is, since Jesus went through everything that you're going through and more, he says, learn to think like him, all right? Then you see the next red part, then you'll be able to live out what God wants. So his whole point of why they're going through some of these difficulties is because Jesus has already gone through them, and suffering kind of does something where it kind of like focuses the mind so that we can learn to think like Jesus, then we can actually live out our days doing what God wants rather than the things that we want. That's really kind of his first point. Suffering is going to help you think like Jesus, have the mind of Christ so that then you can act like Jesus. And the second thing that he says is, he's like, yo, you used to act like people who didn't know God. And he says, you've actually put in way too much time learning ways to destroy yourselves and others. Now it's time to learn how to love yourself and love others. That's what he's kind of getting at in verses 3 and 4. Yo, yo, you used to act like a fool, but now you've been cleaned up. You've been rescued. You've been saved out of that. Now you need to stop learning how to destroy yourself and others, but rather how to love yourself and how to love others. And then... The third kind of point in Peter's logic in this passage is simply to say in verses 5 and 6 that God will judge the world and vindicate Christians. 
Now, to be honest, it's weird. I'm a pastor, and yet I feel a little bit uncomfortable even saying that. I think maybe it's just the culture that we live in where it's just not cool to, like, brag or be braggadocio or something. And yet we're never going to step away from the truths of Scripture. Look, the, the Scriptures are pretty clear. The day is coming when Jesus is going to return. And he will judge the living and the dead. How we lived our lives. And maybe folks look at you sometimes if you're trying to follow Jesus and they think like, man, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, the things that you're passionate about, the things that you don't care about, that's strange, it's weird. We don't like that about you. How come you don't act the same way that we do anymore? Maybe they give you grief. Maybe you feel a little bit of persecution. Probably not physical, but emotional, or maybe they kind of push you out, say that you're, you know, you're not really like one of us, and the scriptures say Jesus will return one day, and those who follow Christ will be vindicated. might feel a little bit uncomfortable for you to hear that, for the text to say that, but that is what scripture teaches. So no matter what you think you're giving up right now, or what abuse you're experiencing as a result of following Jesus, The day will come when Jesus returns, and it will all make sense. Then there's an application. The application is basically this. The end of all things is near, so do two things. One, pray to God, and two, love each other by caring for one another and serving one another. That's kind of verses 7 through 11. Now, there is one tricky piece In this text, it's kind of the elephant in the room that I feel like we need to address before we can move into the application. And it is simply the fact that it says the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. Looks like this picture. My favorite part is the woman in front. It's actually, it says the end is at hand. It's actually God. It's really small, but it says 1 Peter 4, 7, talking about this exact verse. There were literally people who walked around, apparently, at one point with signs that say the end is near, quoting 1 Peter 4, 7. I don't know if that lady up front, if she ain't feeling what homeboy's saying or if she's judging all of us. I don't know, but I like her. The end is at hand. The end of all things is near, Peter says. That's scripture. So why in the world are we still here 2,000 years later? Uh, A fair question. If the end is at hand, the end of all things is near, what are we still doing here? Did Peter get it wrong? Did the Holy Spirit mess up? Ah, just playing. Just checking to see if you were still listening. Why is this here? When I read that, my mind instantly goes to, well, shouldn't the world have blown up by now? Like, isn't that what he's saying? So I had to do some study. Uh, one of the people that I've been using uh, to study First Peter uh, is a New Testament scholar. Her name is uh, Dr. Karen Jobes. And uh, she said this, and it really kind of opened up my understanding of what Peter's actually saying here. Understanding it from the perspective of 
an ancient Jew writing in a Greco-Roman world to Christians from Rome that are scattered in the outer reaches of the empire rather than 2022 modern Western mindset. She says this. She says, how then is the end, okay? Those two words in Greek are the words to tell us. To tell us. How then is the end supposed to be construed? How are we supposed to understand it? She says, while modern readers may immediately think of the end of the world, the semantic range of the word telos suggests more than mere termination and refers to the last stage of a process as well as to its outcome or goal. Peter is saying that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his readers at that time and us today are living in the last stage of God's great redemptive plan. And the goal of that plan is being realized. Listen to what she says. Therefore, the end is near signifies the final stage of that redemptive process, which leads to its consummation or to its finality in the return of Christ. You see, when we read it, we think Peter's saying that the world's supposed to blow up any second. But what Peter's actually saying to the Christians is that we are in the last phase of God's work. Christ has died and been resurrected, and now we live in this resurrection age. There is nothing else to come other than Jesus to return and judge the world. And we're living in the last time, the last days, the last section of God's redemptive plan. And so because of that, we need to pay attention to some things. In fact, we're going to learn what those things are. They are the application of our text, and it's really what we're going to kind of focus our last minutes on together. So there are really are two applications here, and it's kind of how we measure a life. I'd like to start by saying the first one is prayer, and the measurement is 10 seconds. Now, before I explain what the heck that means, I'd like to talk a little bit about the context with which Peter is writing this. I've mentioned that this is kind of a stream of thought that Peter's had from the beginning of chapter 2 all the way now here to the middle of chapter 4. We have to remember that Peter kind of starts this whole discussion out by reminding the people that he's writing to, and you and I, that we are living stones. What he meant by that is that uh, at the time, God or gods would only dwell the temple that was built for them. In fact, Yahweh did that as well. The temple that was built, Yahweh inhabited the Holy of Holies. When Jesus comes, the temple is destroyed, Jesus says... My presence is no longer going to be in the Holy of Holies. Now I'm going to give my presence on you when I give you the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit actually lives within us. So instead of there being a physical building where God would locate his presence, now we become the physical building. That's why he says we're living stones. We're being built up to create this temple, to be this temple, because the Holy Spirit indwells us. And so basically what he says is that they are this holy nation, royal priesthood, God's chosen people, anybody who is a follower of Christ, that's true. We have God himself. We are actually the place where heaven and earth meet. Heaven and earth meet in the heart, in the soul of the Christian. 
And so he starts this whole stream of thought by saying that. We are the place where heaven meets. And as a result, we are different than the rest of the world. And anything that's different is looked on with suspicion and often is kind of pushed to the, to the, to the sides. Peter says, and it's true because they're in the middle of some crazy persecution that's happening, that because they're different, they're going to be persecuted, that they're going to suffer. Uh, listen to N.T. Wright discuss this. He said, suffering, it seems, brings about a particular transformation of character. It makes you reevaluate your whole life. Sometimes it happens that someone who has had a potentially fatal stroke or heart attack makes a remarkable recovery. In such cases, peace, people often say that they have rethought their whole lives and now realize much more clearly what matters and what doesn't. This reminds me of a friend of mine. His name is Claire DeGraff. Claire's in his 70s now, but Claire grew up in Grand Rapids. Claire went to church his entire life, but he would tell you he was religious, very religious, but he didn't really know Jesus. He knew about Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus, and uh, his dad, I think, passed away when he was in his early 20s, mid-20s. His dad had a company. It was fairly successful. Uh, Claire took the company over, though, and over the next 10, 12 years, the company exploded. Went from, like, doing a million in sales to hundreds of millions in sales. It's what he gave his whole life to. It's what he was about. It's what he was passionate about. And then went in for a routine check somewhere, I think it was... 35, 37, somewhere in that ballpark. And some weird things kind of came back, and they brought him in for some more tests and found out that he had a very serious cancer. And the doctor said he needed to immediately go into treatment. And so Claire did over the next couple of years. And Claire was lucky. God was gracious to him. And Eventually, his cancer went into remission. But during that time when he was fighting cancer, he started asking himself some really serious questions. He knew what he had given his whole life to, which had been business and making money and trying to be a nice, good person. And he's like, God showed me that all that stuff was rubbish. And he's like, and I don't know how else to say it, but God captured my heart. He fell in love with Jesus. And he got so passionate about Jesus, all he wanted to do was talk about Jesus. And even when he went into remission and kind of started coming back and taking over his seat as the president and CEO owner of this company, all he wanted to do was talk to other people about Jesus. And finally, after a few years, his board came to him and said, hey, uh, that's great that you love Jesus and all, but we really need you here. And he ain't really here. And he's like, uh, you're right. I'm so sorry. I quit. <laughs> and so he did. Now, it's kind of nice when you're 40 and, you know, your company's worth a lot of money and you can do that. He was able to do that. But you know why he did it? Because all he cared about was wanting to tell other people about this Jesus that he had found. And so his life got focused as a result of that suffering. And that's what N.T. Wright's talking about, how that happens. That's really what Peter is explaining to us here in this passage. N.T. Wright goes on to say this. He says, in the same way, Someone who has suffered for the gospel may attain a new kind of clarity. They see more sharply the kind of world that sin produces, and they know that they are done with it. And they see far more gloriously that God's will is the only thing worth following. This brings us to 10 seconds. 
When we recognize that God's will is the only will worth following, it actually leads us to a place where we actually want to know God's will. And if you want to know what God's will is, you need to pray. It's really Peter's first application. He's like, hey, we're at the, we're at the end. We're at the end of this thing. There, there's nothing else to wait for other than for Jesus' return. So therefore, pray that you might know God. Uh, Claire de Graff went on to actually write a book. It's called The Ten Second Rule. And this is what Claire found. He's like, God, I really want to know you. I really want to know your will so that I can actually do it because I know that that's where life is actually found, when I'm actually doing the things that you've called me to. I don't care how crazy they are, how difficult they are. That's where I'm actually going to find joy, where I'm going to find fulfillment, where I'm going to find purpose, the very thing that my heart was created for, that my life was created for. So, God, I need to know what it is. And so uh, he said he wanted to start praying. But he wasn't always sure when it was God's voice. Was that actually God talking to him? And so uh, he realized, though, that whenever he obeyed God, did what he felt like God was telling him, that he would begin to recognize what God's voice sounded like more and more. And so Claire came up with this thing called the 10-second rule. Anytime that he felt like God was saying something to him and he was reasonably sure that it was God, he said he recognized he had 10 seconds to either say yes and obey, and if he didn't say yes within 10 seconds, he probably wasn't going to do it. And so he made for himself a 10-second rule. That any time that he sensed God was saying something to him, he would try to say yes within the first 10 seconds, knowing that if he didn't, he probably wouldn't obey God. And the more that he said yes to God, the more that he began to recognize God's voice, what it sounded like, the things he was calling him to. Now, that doesn't mean that God is just sitting up in heaven, looking down on you, just trying to get you to go do stuff for him all the time. Hey, kid, go get me a beer out of the fridge. That's not what God's like, okay? God calls us to step aside from our normal lives to in faith obey him because he knows that's where we're actually going to find life, find meaning, find purpose. And the more that you obey God, the more you recognize what his voice sounds like. And the more that you recognize what God's voice sounds like, the more you're going to hear things like, hey, kid, I love you. If you're ever talking to God and you hear, I love you, I promise you that is the voice of God. The more that I've learned how to listen to God's voice, to pray and really not just talk but listen and then obey, the more I've begun to recognize what God's voice sounds like and the more I hear God telling me how proud he is of me. God also calls me to do things, asks me to step out in faith. Why? Because he knows that when I step out and trust him, that what he says is true, my faith is going to increase, and the very thing that I was created for is actually going to grow my purpose, my fulfillment, the joy that I have in life. I've never once stepped out in faith trying to obey God in something he's called me to do and regretted it later. Even if I mess up and God's like, yeah, bro, that wasn't me. God still sees my heart is to serve him, to know him, to obey him. That's why Peter says, hey, I want you to be people of prayer. The ends come and talk to God, listen to God, and obey him. You're going to find life there. 
That's the 10 second rule. When you're reasonably sure God has said something to you, you basically have 10 seconds to make a decision. Am I gonna say yes or no? The more you say yes, as crazy as it might sound, the more you're gonna start to recognize what his voice sounds like. The second thing that God calls us to is uh, what I would like to say is the two minutes that leads to 24 hours that will change your life. The two minutes that leads to 24 hours that will change your life. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, said this, most of all, love each other as if your life depends on it. Love makes up for practically anything. When we pray, and we hear God's voice, God's going to call us over and over and over again to loving one another. How do we love one another? He tells us in the text. We love one another by serving one another and caring for one another. Practicing hospitality is the way that we care for one another. Using the gifts that God has given us, the experiences, the resources, that's how we serve one another when we do that stuff. And serving and caring for one another is how we show love. So first we pray, we listen. We obey, we act. And what God is always going to call us to is some sort of, some form of caring for, loving, serving one another. Now, what am I talking about when I say two minutes? Um, my wife and I, for the last decade, have been trying to get our kids to brush their teeth for the dentist-recommended Full two minutes. In fact, if you ever come to my house, especially in the evening, you will hear this refrain over and over again. Kids, did you brush your teeth for the full two minutes? Right? Because you ever had a kid and seen them brush their teeth? It's like maybe some toothpaste gets on there and it's like one time and then they just stick it in their mouth and walk around for 30 seconds and nothing gets brushed. They put it back in there. So for the last 15 years, we've said, Hey, kids, have you brushed your teeth for the full two minutes? Now, guess what? Dentists say you're supposed to brush your teeth for two minutes twice a day. Okay? Four minutes. You add up four minutes over the course of 365 days, one year. That's 24-plus hours of continual brushing of teeth. Can you imagine having the electric toothbrush in your mouth for 24 hours straight? 24 hours. That's how much. You're like, yo, I didn't realize it was that much time. Yes, it's that much time. And it pays dividends, doesn't it? You're like, I don't know, maybe, does it? I'm about to show you the teeth of a man from Michigan who has a rare phobia of brushing and dentists and literally didn't brush his teeth for 20 years. What I'm about to show you, you cannot unsee. If you are squeamish, this is the time for you to close your eyes and not look at the screen because this is the front teeth of a man who did not literally brush for 20 years. <laughs> this is a view of the side of his teeth and this is a shot of the roof of his mouth. Now, I will show you a picture after they put him under general anesthetic for a, uh, a number of hours and over a couple of different sessions, uh, they were able to get his front teeth to look like this. Shocking 
that they could get them to look that much. And look at the side teeth now. What a difference. Why am I showing you these pictures? What Peter is basically saying is that you used to have lives like that poor man's teeth. Now Jesus has cleaned you up, so it's important that you start brushing your spiritual lives on the regular. We used to have teeth like that in the way that we used to live. But now, because of Jesus, we've been cleaned up. And we need to take care of it. Right? You brush your teeth literally every year for 24 hours straight. If you want to brush your soul, then you love one another by serving and caring for one another. Let me give you one really easy way that some of you are doing this in this church. You're on a serve team, and that means every other week, you help out for an hour with the kids' ministry. And you don't realize it, but that's actually about 24, 25 hours a year. Same as the time you spend brushing your teeth to make sure that you don't get a buildup of plaque. By serving every other week for an hour, you are brushing your heart to make sure that it doesn't build up with plaque that you don't get spiritual halitosis. And the doctor that did the work on that said, homeboy had some pretty serious halitosis. You see, friends, we don't want to wind up in a state where we've just stopped working. If we're going to be new people, different people, we've got to be people of love. And to love means to serve and to care. At least that's how Peter defines it and describes it there. That's the two minutes that leads to 24 hours. Now, the point is not you should like, you know, find two minutes twice a day to serve somebody. The point is that just as you brush your teeth regularly to make sure that that buildup doesn't occur, we serve and care for one another. We do that consistently. And so that leads me to the very last application, which is the final 15. If you're a fan of football, you know that there are four quarters in a football game, 15 minutes each. I had the privilege of being the chaplain for the Grand Valley uh, State University football team. And uh, when I'm down on the field with them uh, and the end of the third quarter comes, does anybody know what they do? That's right. They put up four fingers. Why? Because it's the fourth quarter. And they say, we're going to own the fourth quarter. That's our quarter. Nobody's going to work harder than us. We're going to give it. We're going to lay it all out in the field. We own the fourth quarter. That's how we're going to come away. We don't let up. Peter says, friends, we're in the fourth quarter. There's nothing else to come except for the return of Christ when he's going to judge everything. We're in the fourth quarter. So hold up four fingers and say, yo, let's give it all we got. We're going to own the fourth quarter. We're not going to slow down. We're not going to hold back. We're going to leave it all on the field. And that's what Peter's saying to you and I. We're supposed to own the fourth quarter, friends. We've got nothing left to hold back for. We can lay it all down. And so I think that there's kind of two questions that I want you to just simply sit with God on just for a second. If we're in the fourth quarter, and we can measure our lives by the way that we listen to God and obey him, 
and by the way that we love one another by serving and caring for one another, which one of those time periods do you need to pay attention to? Is it the 10-second rule? God, I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to obey. Or is it the 24 hours? God, I need to do some consistent work to serve and care for the folks around me so that I can keep the spiritual plaque off of my own heart. Um, Can I just say to you what I think spiritual plaque looks like? Spiritual plaque on our heart looks like hypocrisy. It looks like people who say that they follow Jesus, but then it doesn't actually show up in their lives. They're not actually more loving, more patient, more kind. They don't have the fruit of the Spirit. They're not serving one another. When we have that kind of spiritual halitosis, and then we go and try to talk to people about Jesus, they don't want to hear it because our breath stinks. So let's make sure that we're looking at our own selves and saying, God, help me work this out. God, I'll step into those places. Now, I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm not trying to be like, oh, like you, you don't do enough. You know, God wants, look, I'm just saying that when Jesus cleans us up, we don't want to fall back into the old ways. We don't want to get back to where we were. We want to keep stepping forward. Why? Because that's where life is found. That's where life is found. And that's what Peter could say to these Christians who are living in a way harder time than we are right now. So right now, I'm just going to ask that we'll close our eyes. I'm just going to give you a minute to sit with Jesus and just say, all right, Jesus, is it the 10-second rule, God, that you want me to start really thinking about this week, talking to you, listening to you, and then obeying what you say? Or God, is it the 24 hours, God, that there's there's a ministry here at the church that I need to step into? then I need to start serving at on a regular basis to make sure that I'm scrubbing that plaque off of my heart. Take just a minute and sit with God and and see what he might want to say to you. Father God, we want to be a church that Um, doesn't just talk about it, but it actually is about it, that lives it out. God, I want that to be true of my life. God, I want to be somebody who's willing to, to listen to you, God, when you speak to say yes. God, you know how often I hesitate or I wait or I hold back. I don't want to do that anymore. God, I know when I say yes to you, when I step out in faith, when we say yes to you, when we step out in faith, God, you show up, you meet us in those places. God, we find purpose and fulfillment, joy, life. It's what you promised. And God, every time I've done it, I've seen that it's true. So God, let us be a people, a church, a whole bunch of us that's willing to say yes to you. Step out into that place, into that space, Lord, for your glory, that we would have the privilege of sharing with others what we have found. Thanks for never giving up on us. Thanks for your second chances and your third and fourth and fifth and 80th and a thousandth chances. That's who you are, God. We want to keep moving towards you. Thanks for your love. It's in your name we pray.